This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Hornswording. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've made some exciting new changes to our mead range, and in particular, our Yorkshire mead. So what we've done is we've completely rebranded, relabeled, and we've also added a couple of new flavours. Now, before I tell you about the new flavours, I want to tell you a little bit about the mead production, because this stuff is really something special. It's made at a micro meadery just on the outskirts of York, and it's run by a fellow called Pete Allenson, and this guy does everything himself. He keeps the bees, he sustainably harvests the honey from his own bees, he then ferments the honey to make the mead, he bottles the mead, he labels the mead, he sends it out to us, I mean this guy does everything and, and mead is what he does and that's part of why I think this stuff is so amazing because it has such a short journey from production to bottling to end user um, and I think it really is a special product. So we have our three traditional ones that you might have seen on the website before which are mead of Serenos, our mead of Brigid and our mead of Morrigan. The Morrigan is an elderberry, the Serenos is a heather honey and the mead of Brigid is a traditional. Now on top of that, what we've done is we've added a spice mead, which is Surtur's mead. We have Loki's Curse, which is a pineapple and coconut mead. And then we also have Tia's Sacrifice, which is a whiskey and cherry mead. And I mean, that stuff is absolutely beautiful. All these meads are available in 75 cl bottles and a 25 cl bottle, so you can sort of pick your size. On the website, we also pair it in a gift set where you get a 25 cl bottle and a small drinking horn. Perfect for gifting or a little treat for yourself even. Even if you don't like mead, just it's worth going and looking at this stuff just for the artwork and for the bottles. Saxon Storyteller has done the artwork and I mean, he's absolutely nailed it with these. The, the labels look beautiful and I'm really proud of it. I'm sure you can tell. So just pop over to the website, hornsofodin.com. You get 10% off for listening to the show with the discount code HORNS10. So you should pop that in at checkout so you're going to get 10% off your order, Horns 10, and honestly, just try this stuff out. It really is, I think, the best mead available. Right, let's jump into the show. Hello and welcome to Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company Horns Vodin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. Today we're joined by Hamish Lamley from Pictavia Leather. Hamish is a leather worker and also a bit of a BBC star, I've noticed. We've been on several yeah, <laughs> BBC <bit>. shows. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, man. Pleased to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. We've uh, been trying to get this one in for a while and something kept popping up or having to change the date. So it's it's good to finally get it done. Aye, aye. Done in the right way. And uh, as it's pouring down with rain here at the moment, so see if that gets a bit loud on the workshop roof. We'll see. Uh, I mean, is it ever not raining in Scotland? Well, aye, it's part and parcel. Of it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, uh, you're recording from your your studio i mean your workshop now so anybody who, who watches this later will see some of the amazing wares behind you some of the tools that you use it's uh looks pretty cool it's uh yeah it's busy i mean this is this is where i spend 12 hours a day seven days a week so it's cozy i'll give you that <laughs> not, not bad at all <laughs> no but it's good it's good to be busy as well it's good that you've got that much work to do yeah yeah it's been a strange year for it so just embracing everything we can really just just jump for it so yeah mm -hmm. when you said you wanted to have a chat about picks i thought yeah let's go for it that's it i mean we can let's chat about the leather first before we uh 
yeah. jump into that because you make some absolutely beautiful pieces and i've seen you also do do classes you teach a lot of people your your skills which i think is is really good oh, yeah, i teach teach here and i teach in norway uh do viking age leather work over there mm-hmm. and i teach around scotland um teach out in the hills doing tanning stuff as well which is what i'll be doing uh, all of next week so yeah kind of kind of cover a pretty broad range of stuff of um building up heritage craft again mm-hmm. um trying to trying to bring back the leather industry a little bit as well, teach people about tanning and leather working and how they combine and how communities of craft kind of work together again. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. So do you, is everything you do as traditional as possible? I know very yeah, little about leather uh, work. Yeah. Do you, yeah, so, do you soak it all in pee? No, no, there's no urine used in our stuff. No, 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 <laughs> no, that's definitely a Middle Eastern thing. No. So I, I, I focus on the heritage craft stuff. So museum replicas, um living history reenactment stuff um because that's that's where the passion is really um mm-hmm. but i also have my bread and butter modern leather work in like wallets and bags and belts and things um because you know we love the history but we do live in the modern age so you've got to pay the bills we've got to account for everyone yeah yeah so it's it's a little bit of both really and um and it's an interesting spread between them because you can combine old techniques and new ones and create something that's new but it got a kind of nod to the past as well mm-hmm so how did you how did you get into that in a in a sense of of so deeply you know because you obviously love leather leather work and it it's your it's your life so at what point did did that become a thing? Oh, I I I love the leather. That's that's it every day. It's, uh, <laughs> it's this childlike love for the leather. It's it's bizarre. But uh, I started over ten years ago. I, I actually had a couple of back ops and I was bedbound and. Um, just needed something to kind of focus on mm-hmm. and uh, I was reading a lot of history at the time and I thought oh I'll try and make a wee belt pouch or a knife sheath or something so I bought some leather and, and got going and it kind of started as therapy for me um mm-hmm. being in like a really depressive state I, re- I discovered I could create something and uh it just went right into the leather work all the stories I was reading and thinking about um you know the the the, the bags the pouches the belts everything you hear and you read about in the sagas and stuff like that I thought I'm gonna make that. That's that's cool, and uh, I just just fell in love with it. Became absolutely obsessed. So I say I don't need I don't need uh, drinking drugs. I'm I'm addicted to the leather. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty good relationship I've got. I think. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that's such a lovely story. I I I love kind of like origin stories like that that are, are born from just something very kind of innocent or even like out of a, a dark place, and it brings brings joy because i mean i've never tried doing leather um, but i know you don't necessarily need much space to get started you just need like a, a i never know what they're called those green sort of padded mats hi hi the the compression mats yeah 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 you a don't need of... much i mean i i because i started whilst bed bound i learned to mm-hmm. do everything whilst lying in bed so uh I call it my alter technique, like lying on my back, working off my stomach. It's, it's, I mean, it works. Was, yeah. you know? <laughs> and uh, then my first workshop, I lived on an arrowboat and I had this this tiny wee table. And of course, every time you take a step, all your toes roll off and it's it's an absolute pain. But you can work. <laughs> you can work with a really little space. And you, it's a kind of it's a craft that's obtainable to anybody. You don't need loads of tools. You don't need loads of material. Um, you just need to kind of get excited about it and, and, and tinker with it, really. Oh, that's uh, yeah i love like i say I, I love this stuff just old forgotten crafts that that need somebody like you to uh to keep them going um 
So how much research do you do into old techniques and how they would have been done traditionally, I guess, in sort of traditional Scottish ways and also kind of like, because you do biking stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the absolute first step is getting to the museums. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's um, getting getting eyes on and, if possible, hands on to artefacts um, mm -hmm. and, and trying to deconstruct stuff. That's the, the, the biggest point. Um, reading um, academic papers, reading PhD thesis, trying to build the context around what you're doing, because we have the academic side of archaeology and we now are starting to show the respect for the craft side of archaeology too with experimental archaeology. So I always try and point out that you can't have just the academic and you can't have just the craft. It's trying to combine them. So academics need to look more to craftsmen to reconstruct stuff. And as a craftsman, we need to look more to academics to fill in the context of pieces. And once you have the context, then you can get to the artifact. Um, and once you can look at that and you can deconstruct things and you can look at tool marks, um, tools, you can look at patterns, the way leather was used, the way leather was tanned. Um, and then once you know that, you will start to learn about how the artifact was actually used day to day. And, and that's kind of that reverse engineering process that you go through as a craftsman. And it's just, mm -hmm. just problem solving. That's all craft is. So what mm -hmm. we're trying to do is solve the same problems that they were doing. Um, we just have to relearn it all. We're kind of standing on their shoulders to do it, really. Yeah. How much um, uh, sort of like archaeological material do you have uh, from the Scottish area to go by when, when it comes to reconstructing leather, um, <laughs> we know, shoes, that. dresses, whatever it has been used for historically? It's a pitifully small. Uh, we're really not lucky in Scotland. The soil conditions... Are terrible for preservation. Mm -hmm. The only things we do have are um, the odd, the odd artifacts that are found in midden heaps, which are like you know, uh, like trash holes buried in the ground, or uh, underwater where uh, material deposits um, fallen onto stuff, and um, the water basically stops the oxygen getting to it. But mm -hmm. it, compared to uh, Viking and Saxon things and, and Irish as well, we have almost nothing, and mm. that's. <laughs> so painful as a leather worker um, but what it does do is it means that the small uh, number of artifacts we do have we can look at quite in depth and so um, I'll probably show you a couple of replicas that I've been working on um, and we can we can maybe talk about those a little bit some of the little things I've learned from doing it mm -hmm. absolutely yeah that, that was going to be my next question as well was how how well preserved or how much leather do you get with it being an organic material I imagine it it's one of the first things to disappear over time. Yeah, it is. It's um, yeah, it, it it always is. It just doesn't last. And when it does, it's it's in a bad state and it's you know really fragile, very difficult to deconstruct. And even when you can do that, you still have the job as a craftsman that it's all interpretation. We're not we're not remaking these things. We're just interpreting them. So could be making them completely wrong. We have to be honest about that. Um, <laughs> and just just kind of make our best guess, really. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the the. The, uh, the general discussion, right, when it comes to Viking Age uh, uh, dresses and and clothing in general, the, because there are so few uh, that have been preserved. Um, what what we, you if you go to a Viking market, and of course you've been to several, right? Uh, and you you see all the women wearing these typical strap dresses, right? Mm -hmm. and that's based off of I think one find <laughs> or something like that, and <laughs> that's like oh, that's what women look like. <laughs> period. Um, and it, it is it is unfortunate that that the preservation conditions for for, for textiles and leather are, are so bad. There's a couple. 
I, I think there's at least one pair of trousers from Greenland, um, from the Norse settlement in Greenland, um, that uh, that are almost uh, intact. And then, of course, we get a little here and there. Uh, it's mostly human skin, I guess, with the bark bodies. <laughs> That's yeah. good preservation conditions right there, mm -hmm. because as you said, that at least uh, it, uh, there's no oxygen at all in 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 that uh, confined space and at the bottom of a of a of a peat bog somewhere in in England or Denmark or Northern Germany. <laughs> yeah, and everyone's got bog bodies for Scotland. That's the thing. We got loads of bogs. Nobody was putting bodies in them, and it's so frustrating. <laughs> I would just want one body. I mean, I'll put one in myself. You know, <laughs> one, one body, please. <laughs> yeah, that seems odd. I wonder why nobody got thrown in there. No, they weren't as savage as the rest of us. Like they're, they were pretty chill, and like not, not I mean, sacrificing well, the neighbor. I was going to say, I think everybody has a, a preconceived notion of the the Scots being quite savage. Certainly. Yeah, ritual drowning seemed to be the thing here. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, <laughs> Mateus, to go back to what you were saying about kind of like dresses when it comes to Viking markets, I think that's a you get a bit of an odd take by some people on that you get some people who are very or some groups like reenactment groups are very very anal about what you can and can't do what you what how many stitches are in everything and and all down to the patterns and i always feel a little bit unsure of how i how i feel about it because on one hand i i kind of agree you have to keep with history and what we know and be accurate but on the other hand you're talking about humans and humans did stuff differently and some were lazy and there's no way that everybody was like you have to put 27 stitches in this to make it accurate so I, it's kind of such a weird situation that I never really know where I where I actually find myself on the other thing was do you think there were ever um like fashion like like yes there were definitely fashion you know what I mean like you get like today you get fashion designers who just make some wild shit that's completely different to everything else mm -hmm. do you think that happened then that there was somebody that just made different items of uh clothing was like okay yeah, look at so, this. <laughs> okay now, now you got me rolling uh now, i'm on fire because <laughs> <laughs> this is the greatest fucking subject to talk about when it comes to vikings right um uh, fashion right we've seen the vikings show and all that stuff and they have like weird mohawks and and like all kinds of funky clothing that looks like i don't know lawn chairs more than anything else um so the interesting thing about the viking age is that this is when we see scandinavians becoming really interested in french fashion <laughs> you start seeing the scandinavian men primarily wearing frankish tunics Right. So, 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 so already back then, the French were sort of like leaders in fashion, at least for the Scandinavians. Mm -hmm. And this, like, this precipitates all the way into Finland and Russia and, and, and elsewhere in that whole region. And um, this is one of the, the, the ways we can really identify also Viking graves uh, in, in that in northeastern corner of the Baltic, um, that they're following. Frankish fashion more than anything else, which means that they probably also had the bowl cut hair and not <laughs> the, 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 the animal hawks. All I so, can think so about. Absolutely. All I can think about now is the longhouse being turned into a little fashion show. The catwalk, <laughs> the catwalk down the middle, 
and just uh, a little strut down there like in the norseman like <laughs> yeah absolutely no so so absolutely fashion was definitely a thing back then of course moved much slower um and there were, of course also you know a uh, different uh, sort of like prime movers, you know, they didn't have the Instagram influences, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the equivalent would be the king and the queen and the, the court, the royal court, right? And, and those aristocrats out there would be parading around their awesome new outfits, right? And then you would have some kind of Viking magnate sitting on his little farm and like, I, I need to look like that. Mm-hmm. And then, then he would get the, the fine clothing from, from some trade route. Some and it just trickle down. They yeah. must well, have it been... spreads through the craftsmen as well, because that's yeah. that's how art styles migrate. Mm-hmm. We have evidence in Scotland of uh, silver brooches with Pictish iconography, and then we have them in Ireland with the Irish artwork, and then we have some brooches with Pictish and Irish artwork on them. So it's yeah. theorised like Pictish craftsmen travelling to Ireland and some Irish layer going, I like that, can you do that? But with some of my stuff on it too. Mm-hmm. Starting yeah. a whole new fashion, yeah. and that's, we see the exact same thing in the Viking Age. Just even so, the, some of the main things about the Viking Age is, of course, that that's the time period in Scandinavia where you have urbanization—the first urbanization ever to happen in Scandinavia. Right? These trade ports that become more and more populated, and there you have industries like straight-up industries with guilds. We must assume that they're guilds of some kind, right? They're similar styles as, as guilds, at least, where, you know, a bunch of students are learning from a master, and then they are uh, disseminating the, uh, um, the styles that, that they are learning. And then you see the, the, the styles cropping up in other trade ports in, in that whole circumbaltic area. And... I mean, this this is a process that I'm sure happened several centuries before in the British Isles and in the Scottish area. Um, and it, this is, of course, all related to trade and to some extent market demands, right? There's somebody who goes, oh, I like that style. And then somebody else goes, oh, I like that style too, because the person who said it first was like cooler than the, some other person mm-hmm. or something like that, right? And then, you know, the ball is just rolling from there. And that's how you get popular styles uh, there must have been an earl or chieftain that got something and everybody laughed him though there must have happened <laughs> they like he got he got something that he thought was really cool because we've all we've all seen that happen amongst like our just our group of friends one of them turns up in something and you're like what the fuck is that like, <laughs> what is that why are you wearing that the first so pair of stripy trousers or something yeah that <laughs> yeah. must have happened like they just had one stripe down the side and it was like what that that's never gonna catch on <laughs> it must have happened surely <laughs> but, i mean that happens with all fashion i guess uh image one thing i wanted to ask you and maybe you'll know the answer to this or not um the leather all the leather armor that you see in vikings is that real or is that like a lot of bullshit I think we yeah, spoke I'm full bullshit, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't we don't see that. We just don't. I mean, uh, my study's more more British Isles based, but yeah, mm-hmm. we just we just don't see don't see the leather arm guards, you don't see leather curious, don't maybe maybe you'd get kind of skull caps and things and little bits here and there. Um mm-hmm. maybe leather coats and things like that, because a leather coat can turn a blade. But um and but I mean it's mostly mostly rain gear leather stuff. 
Okay. So, no. but yeah, but based on evidence, we're we're just not seeing it. No. No, it's it was always curious to me because on was it on Vikings? And I think not even I don't think it's just Vikings. I think it's any Viking-based TV show film. They always have really fancy leather armor, but I just never I could never see it being real. It's um, it's but, costume departments that are competing to try and win awards, so they're trying <laughs> to jazz it up to to bump their own business up, really, which is fair enough. That's, they do that's look why cool. Have. Yeah, they look cool. They win awards for it, so it it pays for their business, really. And I'm sure so, if they I'm sure if they came to you and asked you to make a piece, you would make a very beautiful piece. I charge them four times for it. <laughs> of course you would. You yeah, you better do. <laughs> so one thing when it comes to like Viking armor, right? Um, if they were wearing armor, um, we could probably assume that they were wearing chainmail. Um, that's what we see in a lot of mm-hmm. finds, right? So, so actually, for if you for the listeners who want to you know, picture this, like you know, a a crusader warrior more than anything else would be like uh, the style of a Viking warrior as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, this chainmail armor um, and and a pretty simple. Um, Round-ish helmet, and that's it. But how co- how common would chainmail be? Would that not be only for the elite, or because I imagine that's not easy to make? I think we have pretty good evidence that that it, there was a lot of it was worn, and okay. also one of the things. So, so for instance, with swords in the Viking Age, previously people or archaeologists were more on the, the sort of like on the side of. Of the argument of like how many people w- w- would use source and they would they would say like oh it's it's probably mostly like the elite warriors and so on but what we do see is actually later on in the viking age we see a lot of swords that are very poorly produced and also um therefore cheaper right mm-hmm. so it kind of looks like at some point having sword becomes like a thing and then somebody is like, well, let's make a lot of swords. Maybe that guy Ulfberg or whatever his name was in the Saxon area. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. starts mass producing uh, crappy swords uh, for, you know, um, aspiring Vikings. <laughs> so, As well, so- it's, it's not an industry that has to be constantly pushing out new things. I mean, a, an old set of chainmail can be repaired. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not difficult at last. So you would have a whole economy based around this. You would have... Um, you would have old cheap sets of chainmail going. You would have old cheap swords going. There would be different ranges and different things that would be obtainable to different classes. Mm-hmm. It, it, the economy reflects that at the time, really. So yeah. All right. Let's let's jump into the picks because I'm I'm really interested in this. It's something that I know very little about, and I think to be honest, they're probably the the lesser known of the kind of UK original peoples i guess would you agree with that yeah yeah the, the mysteries surrounding the picks are like they it just keeps getting carried on and carried on and despite academia doing its best it's still so mysterious we still mm-hmm. know so little but hopefully we're going to chat today about the little nuggets of information that we do know and we'll tie it in with the viking age and how it all kind of connects this is where i have a great theory for that um I, i'm i'm, I'm like I really want to <laughs> talk about it at some point. We will. There's, there's, there's this crazy Norwegian theory about uh, the Picts and uh, and Viking relations that we'll get into at some point. <laughs> cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think both me and Mateus are going to learn a lot. So I, firstly, who who were the Picts? Who are the Picts? Where were they from? I think that's where we, we have to start as basic as possible. 
the Picts really are, are the indigenous people of what's now Scotland. But when you look at the Picts, it, it's, a, it's a time range. You have to look at the timeline first before you think of anything else. Um, it ranges from the 1st century AD to the 10th century. So you've got 900 years and the Picts and the 1st century AD are not the, the Picts that are in the 10th century. Mm-hmm. The culture changes quite a lot. So when you're talking about the Picts, you have to know what time period you're talking about. Okay. Um, you know, the same with like, you know, Vikings is such a broad term between cultures and and, uh, and and time as well. It's the same with the Picts. Because it's so broad, we have to kind of break it down a little bit. And once it breaks down, it then spreads into regions around Scotland as well. And then there's what, what we're going to talk about the Picts, but we're also going to talk about all the other little cultures that are around them that mm-hmm. are even more obscure. And that's that's the thing that gets people. Yeah, I, I think. I think that's probably something we should remember about all different groups of peoples, whether it's Vikings, Celts, Saxons, even though we call them one universal name, they're not all the same. Like you say, geographical location, but also time period, you know, when it's spread across 500 years, things change. If you just look at how we've changed in the last couple of hundred years, um, it will be no different to to then. So that's probably something to remember more broadly yeah yeah so what's what i'll what i'll start with is basically we're, we're gonna we're gonna not not think about vikings at the moment okay <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna think about the the, the roman era of picts um okay as when people think of the picts they always think of the the opposition with them they think picts and romans or picts and vikings so we're gonna look at the the picts and romans part of it mm-hmm. um so it, it really kind of um starts in AD 80 um caesar's kind of already been over to the British Isles. How do we look about? Decides he wants it. So he sends his governor Agricola up to Scotland for a campaign in, in 80. And that's when um, he first encounters the, the local tribes of what's now Scotland. Um, and at this point, there's there's no picks for anything like this. There's just hundreds of small tribes, um, Celtic tribes, um, all in their own different little regions. And um, after, a, after a fairly decent campaign, um, Agricola is kind of um, not beaten back, but he takes this Roman might up to Scotland and discovers that all these little um, tribes just disappear into the hills and the guerrilla warfare just kind of starts to grind them down. So mm-hmm. he retreats. And after that, um, our next kind of mention is, is Ptolemy. And he kind of travelled around what's now Scotland and drew a map. And his map's kind of funky looking, but it's kind of there. And what he did is he, he placed 16 tribe names on the map. So we have a couple of names like the Venicones, the... Tezali, the, the Caledoni, and it's that that uh, Caledoni where we get the term Caledonia for Scotland. Mm-hmm. So that was the first kind of look at, okay, this this is a, a piece of land that we're going to call Caledonia. Um, so that was our kind of first look at early Scotland with the tribes. Um, and then later on, we get into, into the second century. Um, we end up having um, the famous Hadrian. Um, he launches a campaign, and again, he comes up against this guerrilla warfare um, that just kind of eats away at the Roman might. Um, and, and what starts to happen is the, the Roman machine basically storms into Scotland, pushes all these tribes together in opposition, and what they start doing is working together. And as they start working together, they start pushing the Romans back out. Mm-hmm. We have uh, reports of um, Romans sending um, auxiliary scouts out into Scotland from similar cultures. So you probably have kind of um, like French Gaul kind of auxiliaries being sent out into Scotland. And they decided they quite liked the Scots, so they'd stick around and they'd lay ambushes for the Romans. Um, so that's when Hadrian decided, right, we're building the wall, keeping them goes <laughs> out. We're going to keep them in 
just fuck those guys off up there. And so we've got we've got Hadrian's Wall built. I always find that so fascinating that you you know you have this Roman army machine that sweeps across everywhere and then gets to Scotland and goes, fuck that. Like, <laughs> like just how the 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 pushback that they must have felt must have been that immense for them to just go. You know what? The best option is to build a wall from coast to coast and just leave you guys to it. Like that. I mean, they, yeah, they they, they kept insane. building walls. That's the problem. <laughs> they, you've got the Hadrian's Wall, then you have the Antonine Wall, then you have the Gas Bridge, which I live on actually, and then you have campaigns all the way up to Aberdeenshire. But every time they overextend, they try and dig in, it doesn't work, and they just have to retreat and retreat and retreat. And this is just a pattern we see for two centuries going backwards and forwards. And every time they go up, they create uh, this opposition that all the local tribes just work together more and more. So what we see is as we get into the third century, there's reports of um, only two tribes in Scotland by then. So they've all formed into the Caledonai and the Maiaitai. So the Caledonai are kind of in the northeast, um, kind of Aberdeenshire, Murrayshire, I think. And Maiaitai is kind of around Perthshire and Fife. So you're already seeing, like, you know, it could have been 50 tribes had gone into that 16, those 16 now into these two tribes. Mm-hmm. And so you see what's happening. The, the, the might of Rome is forming this culture. They're kind of squishing it and forming it into what's happening here. And, and every time they do, the, the local tribes are just getting stronger through opposition. And as they get stronger, they develop more identity and more culture. They've done what so many other tribes and other groups of people should have done throughout history, but never seems to happen. It usually ends up in them becoming more fractured and then getting conquered, I guess. But whereas they just did what everyone always hopes groups would do in, in these kind of situations, just work together to fight a common enemy, whereas a lot of times it doesn't happen. So it's, it's quite a nice romantic story almost that that's what that's what happens it's it's easy to think it's romantic what's probably happening is when there's a bit of break from the roman opposition one tribe's going right i'm having you and having the, and probably, taking over yeah. the smaller tribe so it's actually probably just as bad on the on the scottish side um but what it it's does probably is whoever gets weakened yeah yeah i mean so, yeah you probably have local magnates you know, taking advantage of the situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and in different ways, basically uh, usurping power vacuums and so on, right? So yeah. um, one question I wanted to ask, uh, um, am, am I correct in assuming that that the um, that the Romans actually got pretty far up into what is now modern day Scotland? Um, there was a report on a possible Roman fortification all the way up in, what is that called? Would that be Benny Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, you yeah, should have let was... him say it. You know how many <laughs> words I butchered on this podcast? You couldn't have just let him say it, could you? <laughs> Aye, we, uh, we do see evidence. We see huge um, fortifications going up to Benny um, And when the, when the recent bypass was built through Aberdeen, it did uncover a huge Roman camp. And um, there was intact bread ovens in it. And by the number of bread ovens, they managed to work out that it was a camp for around 20,000 troops, which is staggering, absolute staggering amount. And we forget about the fleet. There was a a Roman naval fleet as well that could come all the way into Perth and could travel all the way up the coast. So this wasn't just just, uh, troops and men marching from the south up. This was huge fleets coming in, trying to control tribes. But again, 
that all disappeared. It it just faltered every step of the way. Um, How fucking scary must those people have been? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I feel sorry for the poor wee Italian lads that were getting their first posting in the Roman army. Where are we going? I'm going to Spain. No, 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 no. no. Are we going to Africa? Oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're going to this northern place that rains all the time and he's <laughs> got these tall madmen. So. Do, you, do you think the weather played a part in in the ability to be able to push them back because it's not nice in Scotland at certain times of year to be I mean that is that is something that uh, in in context of Germania that the uh, the Romans are reporting it's like this these people have shitty weather we don't know if we even want to be here (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I think I think so I think so but then as 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 we can as we continue um so it's the year 297 is when we get the first mention of the Picts. Um, there's a there's a Roman document and it mentions the Haberni in Ireland. So it's the first mention of the Haberno and it's um, the Picti in, in the north, kind of north of Scotland. So that's the, the first mention we get. And then um, about half a century later in 364, there's a mention of Picts, Scots and Saxons raiding south. So mm. this is where we start to see Scots basically. And it's not Scots that we have today. This is where we start to see that there's um, those Caledone and Maiaitai have formed into one tribe in the east, and that's the Picts, the Picti, which is where we get the terms the painted people, or um, it's also believed it was uh, came from Pretenai, which is where Britain gets its name from now, actually. So whether it's the painted people or Pretenai, we, we don't really know. But we have the Picts in the east, and we have the Scots kind of shown in the west in a um, territory called uh, Daureda. So this is where we start seeing smaller independent kingdoms forming in Scotland as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Scots are originally uh, from Ireland, right? They, they, they migrate over from, from Ireland. There's a huge debate in academia about that because there's, um, there's not evidence for it. The evidence actually points towards them being indigenous in the, in the west of Scotland because oh. we, don't see, we don't see the type of migration patterns that we'd expect to see. Um, we don't suddenly see fresh settlements. We don't suddenly see settlements growing and changing. Um, we see old settlements kind of being reused as they are. And, mm. and there's a lot of other patterns that we don't see that we'd expect to see. Sorry, that just got me rolling because we see the same thing with the Vikings, right? So when Scandinavians are coming over to the Orkneys and Shetland and so on, we don't see, as far as I remember, new settlement as such. We see building on old settlements, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so so there's I, I don't know it's um maybe that's a very technical discussion but uh, but maybe that might not be be the whole part of it then that uh, maybe yeah maybe... I think the strongest theory is that it was an indigenous culture but because they're bisected by the mountain range in Scotland had very little contact with the east but you've got Ireland just over the sea so the culture is probably mixed and, and migrated nice. very well to, to, together but not in one large migration that right. that was previously believed. Yeah. 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 So another another thing about that, I think we when we think about migrations nowadays, I think that's very much uh, formed or framed by more recent migrations, right? So for instance, the European Russian North America, right, which was was very intense, especially in the 19th century and early 20th century. That might not have been how it worked back then, right? It could have been sort of more of a slow trickle. Yeah, yeah, it's a slow trickle with cultures that are so so compatible, really. 
that it's, it's very easy for bloodlines to mix and for um, communities to mix in it and it just kind of naturally forms its own little kingdom um, right. so yeah we, we, we see Dalreda form um, and we see the kingdom of Alklut form around the Clyde just south we see the kingdom of uh, Gododin um, and East Lothian start to form at the same time as well these, these kingdoms are all kind of forming and it's not evident exactly where from if it's just the indigenous cultures that are, that are coming out in strength now. and that, that kind of comes from the power vacuum that's left after the Romans because in the year 410 the Romans are told to withdraw there was this wasn't they weren't beaten back the Scots didn't win what happened was there was wars elsewhere troops were needed and they decided it's not worth keeping this frontier and when you think about it why were the Romans in Scotland in the first place there's no resources there's not loads of gold there's not loads of silver not really there's not anything they really needed and I wonder if it's more of a political statement because it spans the, the Roman, you won't say conquest, but the Roman kind of occupation or campaigns in Scotland formed about, uh, well, several centuries over several emperors. And it's almost like, you know, the new emperor said, well, I'll be the one to tame the savages. I'll send troops up and get the job done. And, and then is beaten back and, and kind of in disgrace. And then the next emperor says, oh, he couldn't do it, but I'll show you what I can do. It must because be, there, it wasn't, must be, there wasn't resources. There must yeah, be a certain amount of ego to it where, especially, you know, if you've conquered an island, but then there's just a bit at the top where you can't quite take it. There's something quite demoralising about that, I imagine. And it's just like, all right, well, we fucking want it. We don't know why we want it, but we just want yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and then but they we, just decide to take their hand out of the cookie jar altogether. And it's like, you know what? Just keep it. It's all right. We don't need well, it. It's, so if we look at, you know, military history in different ways, you can definitely see patterns like that. Another, another similar pattern is the British Navy after the Napoleonic Wars. It's like, we have all these ships. What are we going to do with them? Well, hell, boys, let's send them to the Arctic and, and discover the Arctic, right? Uh, just, just basically to keep the money flowing, too. It's like, oh, well, we, we need more expeditions to the Arctic and that kind of stuff. And, and it seems similar. Uh, I, I very much agree with this. Like, it's probably like emperors who are like, okay, well, um, we should definitely keep this campaign rolling because, you know, we got beaten last time, but I can definitely do it. We see the same thing, I think, with uh, with the Germanic area. I mean, the, the Roman push north, northwards, right, starts with Celtic tribes in, in what is now northern Italy, right, that they have to deal with, right? And then they go beyond the Alps and have to deal with the Gauls and, and all that stuff. And that's, you know, that's useful land too. We, we, we want these provinces, right? But once we start getting into the Belgian area, the Rhineland and all that stuff, it's like, guys, what are we really doing here? <laughs> and then it becomes a matter of ego and pride, I'm sure, at that point, right? And it's the same over, you know, once you're pushing further and further north on the British Isles. You'll want total domination, won't you? And if there's a little area of land that you can't get, that's not complete domination of everyone. And I guess that's that was their goal, was just to occupy everything. Yeah, nobody wants half the island. We want the entire island, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, I mean, unless... that seems to be the, 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 the message from London too, huh? <laughs> right now. Yeah. Oh, bad man. Don't even start. <laughs> he's to to <laughs> he doesn't know what he's getting into <laughs> okay <laughs> so wait 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 the the Romans so, yeah drew. so the 
So 410, that's the start of the fifth century. That this is when the Romans leave. So this is where we define um, the, the change in the Pictish culture. So everything before 410, I kind of classify as proto-Picts. They weren't, they weren't really the Picts. They were tribes that were then kind of became the Picts. Mm -hmm. And then the Romans leave. And what we have is like this huge power vacuum because the Romans were oppressing everybody, not just the Picts. They were uh, oppressing, you know, the Northumbrian Saxons and, um, and all the other cultures down in England. So they, they move out. And what, what you start to see is every little kingdom in the British Isles start to strengthen their, uh, their borders. They start to um, put a lot of effort into their art styles, um, into training their armies, into creating and forming their cultures. So this is where we start to get the Pictish polity. And this is where we start to see in documents that Pictland, that, you know, this area in the northeast of Scotland is now called Pictavia. Um, or Pictland. So this is now one culture, one solid polity, one kingdom. What that's, brilliant that's name wrong. Pictavia is. Yeah. That could just come out of a, a movie. <laughs> that's just so, it's so spot on. Maybe uh, maybe we'll make one, you know? Yeah. I'd say, yeah. This is where we start to see a culture that's, um, I've got powerful feudal system like everybody else at the time. So they're they're keeping up with that. And that powerful feudal system means Farmland's driving it forward. It's training armies. It's training art styles. Um, it's speaking P-Celtic. So the Picts spoke a language more like Welsh than Gaelic. Um, Gaelic was very much a Western thing of the Scots and the Irish. And uh, we uh, have this uh, surviving list of kings. So we, we have almost nothing written about the Picts, but we have two lists, which are called the king lists, that kind of match up. Um, and when they do, it's basically 30 names of the kings going through the ages. Um, and what that starts to tell us is one, uh, we can see in the names that it's this P-Celtic dialect and we can see in the place names P-Celtic. But we also see that uh, this king's not the son of that king and this king's not the son of that king and this king's not the son of him. So we start to see that there's not a patrilinear system. The kingship's not going from father to son. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is going through the female line. It's actually matrilinear. Um, and by this, we see the Picts weren't that bothered. A king didn't need to have a Pictish father. What they'd often do is have a Northumbrian king come in um, with a with a Pictish princess and produce a king. They wanted king blood, basically. So they'd okay. send a Pictish princess down to Northumbria and say, right, take that king blood back up here and we'll have a good one. So uh, <laughs> oh, we, wow. we, we, start, we start to see this forming. And what, what that does, really, is it gives you more options for a, a, a ruler. You know, if a king dies and he only has two sons and both of them are a bit crap, well, you're not going to have a very good king. But you look to the female line and you suddenly have nephews and, and, uh, and all this kind of thing. You have a wider range of suitors to fill the kingship. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to control a stronger kingdom, in a sense. And it's not the main rule, but it certainly seems to have been part of it. And then we, we also realise that the Picts at this time were the last culture in the British Isles to cling to paganism. They were the last pagan culture here. And mm -hmm. when people think of the Picts, they usually think straight away to Christianity. And they, they did Christianise. But we see so much of the pagan artwork in the stone carvings because that, that's the biggest thing we have left. Don't the Irish actually refer to the Picts as apostates for a long time? So basically, yeah. you know, they might have been Christianized at some point and then, then been like, ah, screw it. Let's just go back to the old ways <laughs> after that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Christianization of, of the Picts took took over a century, took well over a century. Um, it, it kind of... Um, um, it started with um, Ninian coming over in the in the south. Really, um, he came into to Whitorn through um, the Solway Firth, 
and started Christianizing in the south. And that's where we believe the first parish in Scotland is. And it slowly started to spread a little bit. And then kind of a half a century later, we had Columba come over and he really started to go to town on the on the northern picks. Um, and it was when he got permission from one of the Pictish kings to go around and preach to the land. That's when we start to see this huge uh, blooming of the Christianity. And mm -hmm. and really, when, when we talk about Christianity, why why wouldn't they Christianize? They were speaking a small insular language that nobody else could communicate with. They were uh, they formed this strong culture, but trade with other cultures was difficult. So you suddenly get access to language, you get access to trade, you can send your craftsmen from the monasteries over to Rome, which which would have happened, and you're connected with the rest of the world, and the economy mm -hmm. starts to flow back up to Pictavia. So we see it like this huge bloom. Yeah, that's such a good point because so many people have this negative idea around Christianity and just, they don't want to accept they did bring good things to, to the places that it, I guess, so, so for... I think this this might be where it, it, it's, it would be uh, prudent for me to kick in the, the Norwegian theory here on, on the piece. <laughs> right, so... Um, there's, there's this uh, theory that was advanced by, uh, I believe his name was Johan Mura, a Norwegian archaeologist and scholar, um, who claimed that basically the Picts and Northern Scotland um, were part of a sort of a cultural community with Norway and, and I believe other parts of Scandinavia, but he's Norwegian, so he's mostly just focused on Norway. And also the Shetlands and, and Orkneys. And basically... Um, what happened was that because of the Christianization, we see the Viking Age as a backlash with salt, right? So, so because the, the Picts are being Christianized, then we have the Norwegians sitting over there and the people in the Shetlands and the Orkans being getting pissed off. And, and then basically starting a, a, a religious war to win back the, their, their cultural uh, sphere that includes Scotland. Um, this, is a, this was a theory, I think, that was advanced in the middle of the uh, 20th century. There are very few scholars who, who agree with it nowadays. Um, it was part of an answer to um, the general relationship between the peoples in all of those islands and archipelagos between Scotland and, and, and Norway. Um, and, and, and what really happened in terms of like migrations from Scandinavia and so on, because obviously the, the conversation about, well, the Orkneys and the Shetlands in particular, and also the Hebrides and, and parts of Scotland in general, uh, has always been like, oh, well, did we just have a bunch of Vikings who came and then um, like eradicated the previous uh, population? Obviously, we know from genetic material that that's not the case. It was very much a mix that was happening. Um, but we do see this interesting uh, situation where, where, where we have uh, several areas that are blanketed with uh, Scandinavian place names, um, where they used to be Pictish or, or Gaelic place names. Uh, so, 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 so some people have have sort of like talked about the so-called genocide theory when it comes to the relationship between populations. Obviously, I don't think that that's uh, ever been the case, but it is interesting to consider this uh, this idea that oh, there was like this Atlantean culture. It always sounds a little like he was inspired by the Atlantis uh, myth for a second there. <laughs> 
it's a it's an interesting theory. It's it's not one that's widely discussed in academia in Scotland, I think, because it's um yeah, it's kind of put in Pictland and the picks in the corner a bit, and it's quite it's a reactive theory, really. Yeah, and it downplays the strength of Pictavia as well. Yeah, which um which at the time in this this little bracket we're talking about, Pictavia was the only pretty much unified nation in the British Isles. The, the Welsh kingdoms, the English kingdoms, the Irish kingdoms were all small, small uh, petty kingdoms with lots of petty kings. When Pictavia is spoken of, it's Pictavia and the, the king of Pictland. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a powerful land. And um, yeah, we do see the, the breach into, into the, the Orcades and Shetland and, um, and in the south, especially in uh, what's now Dumfries and Galloway and through to the Scottish borders, because that was a kind of a uncontested bit of land. It always has been. And there's Viking conquest right through there. So we have we have places where there's definitely been a genocidal streak. Absolutely. Um, I mean, with the Solway, I mean, that's the first area to be Christianized. And that's it's gone. That's all Viking place names, you know. Mm. Um, so there's definitely parts of the theory that hold up. Um, but it's outliers. It's outlier kingdoms. It's not really touched the heartland. Mm. But the language is interesting because I speak Norwegian from working over there and living there. And I grew up in Aberdeenshire speaking Doric, which is a, a Scots dialect. And half the words are Norwegian, mm-hmm. so it's okay. it's. Or I don't Danish. know how far back that goes, or if it's quite a recent thing. But as a, it's as an a Dane, as a Dane, I'll have, have to point out or Danish, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> same languages <laughs> or similar. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, so, so uh, obviously there's been a lot of influence from Scandinavian on um, the English languages. Um, most of it, I think, has its origin in the Viking Age, right? Um, even basic words like them, there, and they, uh, and so on, are from Scandinavian. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's been a lot of interaction, right? There's been a lot of um, um, crossing over in, in different ways. So so there's also been a replenishing, I think, over the uh, years. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. to just to go back to your theory, but well, not your theory, Mateus, the one that you just put forward. Um, <laughs> This is the only little bit of information I know about the Picts. And I think it's the Picts. Might be completely wrong. Uh, but I remember when I was looking into Martin Carver, he did a book on Port Mahomet. Port Mahomet, aye. Port Mahomet. Isn't that the only place where the Vikings raided, where they purposefully destroyed Christian artifacts? Like it was it was almost done, if, if I remember rightly, it was, it was almost done in a, malicious kind of way it wasn't just stealing valuables there was a very deliberate act to destroy like crosses and like stone statues as if it was a a reactive thing towards christianity and not just a case of taking what's worth money yeah quite possibly but the the same did happen in iona as well um which was probably probably even more shocking because the the small island of, of Iona on the west coast is where the Pictish kings were buried, where the Book of Kells was possibly created as well, um, with lots of artifacts. And uh, the the raid on Iona in I think it was eight oh six that was that was completely shocking I think um, and quite devastating. And that probably coincided with the Port Mahomet as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite devastating to see that that level of um, destruction on the Christian monuments. That's that's why I was. Kind of going back to what Matthias said about that very much deliberate attack on Christianity and whether it was something to see Christianity come up into. into if I remember correctly, that is 
that is part of the theory. Um, it is a long time ago since I really delved into uh, it, but you know that there are some things that don't really hold up. Viking attacks on monasteries in the in the British Isles happened from late 700s and onwards, mm-hmm. in the, and and the Christianization happens like a century and a half before. Mm-hmm. So you know that that doesn't really hold up if you ask me. The, the funny thing about Viking raids as well is that the the Picts and the Scots and the Irish and the Northumbrians were raiding each other like crazy. They, they were doing just the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they Christianized and they were still doing the same thing until it got to the point where they said, right, guys, we actually need to make a law here because it's not cool that we keep sacking each other's monasteries. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what they had to do is they all had to send their chief priests, basically. Um, and the Pictish, uh, the Pictish one that went over was to Ireland was Adonnan. And they had this huge conference and they, they came up with the law, nay sacking monasteries because it's not cool, guys, right? And, uh, and it became known as a, as a Domnan's law. They actually had to make that law because they kept doing it too much. Yeah. And so that's when things settled down and they thought, okay, we can have little raids and we cattle raids and burn each other's hell forts, but nay, fucking monasteries, all right? Um, <laughs> and then the Vikings turned up and were like, fucking free monasteries, we'll take those. Ah, go on. <laughs> and then we just see them getting hammered, absolutely yeah. hammered. <laughs> but, so going back to the, the subject of like the name, the Picts, right? So we have from very early sources, Roman sources, reports that the Picts and other uh, Celts uh, that that the Romans are talking about as, as sort of like this group of other people, right? That they do tattooing or in other way paint their bodies, right? This is a this is standard that keeps showing up in the literature. Now this. This is a, a trend that continues in English literature later on in English historical mm-hmm. literature. Um, what what are your your thoughts on possibilities of like them actually doing tattoos and that being a a trait of Pictish culture? Uh, I do think it's a trait because the mentions what what's known today is still another kind of clouded a little bit, and it's been rewritten so many times that it's been mistranslated as well. One of the earliest references was um, from Julius Caesar, and mm-hmm. it, it mentions that they were they were uh, painted basically. But it says vitras, which translates as glass, and that was thought to be the blue or green colored glass that was prevalent at the time. And then that was just mistranslated as wood, and that's where we get the idea of wood from. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that ever related to wood whatsoever. It's just mm-hmm. this word that says glass. So that the wood thing is a bit funny, but there's a there's a really good mention. Um, about the the Romans with the the Scots, I think it mentions. No, it's the Picts, and it says they were checking the dead Picts and reading the symbols of tattooed on their faces. Mm. So we think, okay, there's there's some tattooing going on there, and there's another mention where um, a writer is personifying different Celtic cultures, and he personifies the um, the the Northern uh, Britain uh, as being a female with tattooed cheeks and a, and, a, mm. and an azure cloak. So we've got a couple of mentions of tattooing and there's another mention of them being uh, marked with animals up their arms, whether that's tattooing or painting, we we don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's one other mention of uh, iron marked skin. So that's probably uh, iron, iron pigments in the skin. So Mm -hmm. we're possibly looking at black, maybe red tattooing. When you look at the Book of Kells, you do see red pigments marking out the skin, Mm -hmm. um, which is quite an eye opener as well. We don't Mm -hmm. see blue. 
we don't really see any blue in anything. So I think tattooing, very possible. This this mention of the symbols on the faces. Um, and then you look at the Pictish carvings and it's all symbology based, you know, it's all mm. very symbols. So possibly seeing something like this marked in with iron. Yeah, and I think then, I've I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. There's an ex, uh, a uh, the Northumbrian uh, ecclesiastical council in 780 something actually talks about the difference between Christian tattoos and and pagan tattoos, um, right. which would sort of feed into the same tradition. They have well tattooing first of all, and secondly, they also have you know an idea that well tattoos can have different religious symbolism basically so so that's quite interesting and and as we also talked about before uh, harold govin's son was had a fairly ancient tattooed on his chest or something like that <laughs> <laughs> as dan said the chaviest king <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah i always wonder how how well they would have described the difference, whether it was a tattoo or just war paint, I guess, something that was, was painted on just before battle and you would kind of wipe off after. It's um, very, very hard to actually, when you look at the, the language used around the subject of tattoos or possible tattoos, it's very hard to, to see that it's considered tattoos as you know, mm-hmm. you know, something that is poked into the skin. Um, I, I don't suppose when somebody's trying to kill you with an axe or a sword, you take a second to ask if it's drawn on oh, a me asking? It's probably low on the list. Yeah, the, the thing the thing with the body paint as well is when you when you when you say body paint and you talk about the pics, people conjure up naked men covered in blue. And this yeah. this is the thing that is that we're constantly fighting against because one there's well there's there's no evidence for it but it's still possible they were body painting but this this naked barbarian image is one of the most damaging to the pics because when you look at the stone carvings what you see is very very finely cultured clothing you see finely manicured beards you see hairstyles you see um you see their arms and armor you see them marching in ranks fighting in proper proper serried ranks so this this it's so far from that naked tattooed paint body painted barbarian image and that's why i try and not mention body paint it's possible mm-hmm. they'd had some some painting but i try and mention tattooing more because people think of smart uh important symbols you know the the symbols that are on the stones were clearly so important to them it's very possible they marked themselves with these but mm-hmm. slathering themselves up in paint like a smurf and running into battle naked Let's uh, just not go there, guys. Again. But I think, <laughs> like I think you get that with 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 the Vikings as well. People just automatically go towards a very much a brutish kind of warrior who you know just rapes and pillages and sets everything on fire, and there's no culture there. And that's mm. kind of what the outsider who has very little interest in this subject would would go to. Um, well, I mean, this is a this is a trait of of um, English culture, right? The the othering of other peoples, and mm-hmm. and they that starts with, you know, we we start doing it to the peoples just around us, and then we move out from there. And as we colonize Africa, we start talking about people in Africa like that as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, I mean, it, it started very much with talking about the Scots and the and people in the the Northern Islands. And the Scandinavians like that, 
and you see it a little bit with the Germans as well once in a while, especially around World War One and World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is it is a uh, so. so you know, these stereotypes of like the barbarians or savages, you know, so they can be both positive and negative in the sense that, you know, you, you can use them negatively to, to talk about, oh, these are barbarians, we need to kill them, right? But you could also use them positively as, as is the case today, especially with Vikings a lot. You know, back in the 90s, it was with the Celts and William Wallace and and... Mel Gibson and all that nonsense, right? <laughs> you, that that was like that was the, the the noble savage of 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 the Northern Isles, right? And then now you have the noble savage of Scandinavia. And at some point, they're probably going to find a noble savage over in Poland, or you know, you never know <laughs> where, where the next noble savage will come from. But mm-hmm. but that's that's what that is, right? And you know, this is something that you know, is very much revered and loved over here in in North America. Oh. It's, also, it's also a way to, to talk about your cool ancestry, right? It's a way to romanticize it, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What do we see interaction-wise between the Picts and the Vikings? Is it always negative or do we get kind of them, them getting on? Well, no, they, they, weren't, they weren't kissing and holding hands, I'm afraid. Um, when you start to see the, the, the Vikings interact with the Picts, it's, it's, it's straight in raiding. As I said, it's straight into the West Coast, raiding Iona and the other monasteries. Um, and I think that's why it was so damaging, because Iona was not, not just the, uh, the spiritual centre of the Scots and Dalreda. It was also the spiritual centre of the Picts, um, probably the Alclut as well. All, all of these cultures, even though they, they fought, they all had the same spiritual centre. And the Vikings hit that hard. And um, I think that was the biggest shock. Um, hitting the place where you know the, the Book of Kells was was quite possibly created, so they had to move a lot of religious uh, icons uh, into Dunkeld in the heartland, and eventually moved it all over to Ireland as well for safekeeping. Um, and just before the Vikings kind of arrive on the scene, you've got Pictland really building its boundaries up um, and kind of crushing quite a bit of uh, Dalrida as well. Um, there's a lot of infighting going on. There's there's at one point a a Pictish king's son is. Um, taken hostage by the by the Scots um, and they think oh well we'll get one over on in here and he just goes on a rampage and just starts burning all the hellports down um, <laughs> basically take, takes them all he even sacked Donad which is the the, the power centre of, of Dalreda he took it all um, and then things you know it was this was looking like a good campaign and then you suddenly see Vikings come on scene and what that does is again you see foreign opposition come in and suddenly Picks and Scots want to work together again um, so it was in 839, um, the, the Scots and Picts came together to fight the Vikings um, and they were defeated. The, the Picts and the Scots were defeated. Both kings perished in the battle. The Vikings absolutely wiped the floor with them, mm-hmm. um, which is tragic to read about. But what that did was allowed um, the most famous king, Kenneth McAlpin, to step in. Uh, Kenneth McAlpin, it's believed, had a Pictish mother. Um, but was a Scot. And what happened is with this huge, big uh, power vacuum again, he stepped in as king of both cultures. Um, have, I can't believe uh, he's called Kenneth. That's not that name is not a thousand years that, It shouldn't. Ooh. Well, that's the modern, the modern equivalent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just Kenneth. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also, Kenny. 
so what <laughs> you guys have to fill me in on the cultural implications of the name Kenneth because it has very strong cultural implications where I'm from. Um, you know, if you're if you're a Kenneth, you you you're a guy who rides a moped and wears Adidas tracksuit. <laughs> Is that the same over there? I no, old think... good old Kenneth McAlpin on his moped killing Vikings. That's that's what happened. <laughs> no, I think Kenneth is more of a an elderly professor. That's oh, really? what I would go for. That's what Kenneth <laughs> would be to so me. Interesting. I, think, I think Kenneth is a milkman. Oh, you think he was a milkman? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, so in, in this in story, Denmark. he's the he's the uh, the savior of the pigs and Scots. Yeah, yeah. So he he uh, he he basically stepped in and, and brought both nations together and set about not unifying them, but basically basically pulling them together. And um, and as he was a Scot, and the 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 lordly court was was his. What basically happened is um the the language had already been slowly switching to Gaelic. So. Where you have this this Pictish kingdom that's Christianized, all the Christian uh, all the Christian books and all the sermons were uh, were in Gaelic, and then as the the, the king's court was was Kenneth, um, everything was done in Gaelic there, and all his liegemen, all his his uh, powerful nobles would have been taken from the Scots um, and placed in places of power in Pictland. So this is where we see the the Gaelic language start to take over, um, the 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 Pictish culture start to fade a little bit um and up, upon his death um he was mentioned as rex pictorum king of the picts um so he was still known as as the king of the picts um and he's known as the one that united the the, the picts and the scots um but after his reign is when the nation starts to become known as alba in the in the manuscripts and the kings that came after him were known as Realban, which is king of alba and so this is where we see that that switch to the Gaelic um, and the, the picks slowly disappeared, really. The last mm -hmm. mention of them is in 904, where uh, they're mentioned in a battle with Vikings in Strathorn Valley, which I, I happen to live in. Um, and that's the very last mention of them. And really what we see is, um, you know, the, the Vikings have come in, they've pushed uh, the Scots and the picks together. Kenneth McAlpin has stepped up brought the two nations together under himself. And then it's really his, I think it's kind of his grandsons that that took it on and, and continued the, the kind of uh, formation of what's basically the Scots of Alba. Mm -hmm. And that's, this is where the Picts disappear. They weren't conquered. Um, they just started speaking Gaelic. And uh, they, they just become assimilated, basically. Yeah, mm -hmm. they just assimilate, yeah. It's but almost as if this... the Vikings finished what the Romans started. Just well, pushing, just wondering, like, like, pushing if, it all together into this one, one but, 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 what, but could could it be that you know those last picks who aren't assimilating to the, the Gaelic, uh, they basically team up with Vikings and and then maybe get absorbed there or. Or, or. It's. I mean, it's possible. There's. There's just so little written. Yeah. The, a lot of the things that we do know about the, about the picks comes from the Irish annals, like the the annals of Ulster, mention quite a few things in Pictland. But it's normally just a date when a hill fort was sacked or something like that. There's no mm -hmm. other real mention of what what the Vikings are doing unless it's a large scale battle. Yeah, but we we like to try and point out that it's not. Um, yeah, it's never so black and white. You, you know, you have these large kingdoms, but yeah, you very well have a ship's crew of, of Norsemen with Scots and Irish and 
Northumbrians and uh, Mercians and all sorts. So yeah, it's very possible that a lot of Pictish men that weren't happy with the new court would would have emigrated, would have found new new places to go, mm-hmm. and and with that, more language just disappears. And the only evidence that's left of them is pretty much in the place names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's true. One, one question though, uh, so so obviously um, uh, I can hear from what you're saying is that you um, subscribe to the theory that the pigs were originally Celts. Um, there's also this theory that they might have been pre-Indo-European peoples. What do you think of that um, that theory? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I can still ascribe to that. I don't I don't put my weight behind any one theory in particular. Uh, there's quite a few origin stories around the Picts, you know, coming through from Scythia and things like that, and um, yeah, those kind of Indo-European mixes. And yeah, I can't I can't argue it either way. To be honest, right. I think yeah. it's I think it's a fair a fair theory. Yeah, I mean, it could also be that they started out as like pre-Indo-European peoples, and then you know, uh, adopting Celtic uh, language and and styles and customs. So at some point, I mean, it's. That has happened to other peoples in Europe before. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to look at such a small culture in one tiny part of a very small island. It's kind of you can only look at it in the wider context and see the origins of the Irish and the Picts and and the Scots and what's going down. You know, with the Celts southern, further south in, in the British Isles. So it's hard to uh, it's hard to focus so minutely on the Picts when the the wider context is so much more um, grey, really. Yeah. I always think with, with something like this that it's almost the fact we don't know that much makes it more beautiful. The and I guess it, for you it's it's probably extremely frustrating because you want to know more and you want to know know everything. But it's almost also this very kind of beautiful thing that you just don't know everything and and it can be kind of left in uncertainty. But it's it's we know that they were there and you don't have to know everything. But it's also, I guess, frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Keeps me up at night, you know, that's for sure. It's kind of when we when we when we flip it, um, you know, I often say you can't really talk about the Picts without talking about the Romans. And you look at the Roman archaeology and everything is there. You look at Vindolanda uh Fort, the, the, the Roman barracks, which is just south of the Hadrian's Wall, they have seven thousand shoe finds. Seven thousand. You look at the Picts. There's about three. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, like, it's really frustrating. But as you say, it's kind of freeing at the same time. And and uh, when I talk about uh, Pictish history, I always say it's, it's a discussion. It's an ongoing discussion. We don't really know. So let's just discuss it. Let's interpret. Let's theorize. And that's just going to continue. We're never going to get anything concrete. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the same with Scandinavia. I mean, we're constantly mm-hmm. finding out new things, of course. But but there's there are still so many holes in the history that, that we have to patch up with uh, good guesses more than anything else. Yeah, and what's what's exciting is when new things are found, we're kind of um, finding new stuff all the time, and it's mostly in the form of large Pictish stone carvings, which is the you know the biggest evidence, the biggest draw that pulls people into the Picts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have hundreds around around Scotland. Um, we're, we're almost finding one every year, um, and there's, oh. there's quite fascinating archaeological projects like the Northern Picts Project, um, that's kind of headed up by Gordon Noble up in Aberdeen, and they're they're digging all over the place and finding stuff. And um, we just don't know when we're going to get that missing link. There might be a stone carving that's just got something in it that's just the last little piece of the jigsaw that's going to fill something in for us. Mm-hmm. And so we're all kind of waiting. We're just waiting for a bog body or a stone or something. 
Do you want that bug body, don't you? I want that bug body. <laughs> don't we all, man? Don't we all? <laughs> no, I mean, as technology advances, it's always going to be hopefully more finds. Um, and I, always, I, I kind of wonder this sometimes whether it would be good to have something that could just scan everywhere and you can go, right, we know where everything is now. But that you kind of lose this this amazing thing of finding something new out of the blue as well then. Yeah, it's kind of, I, I like I like talking about Pictish history in all kind of levels. I love it when people have these mad harebrained ideas because it's just nuts and you can go free with it. And then I love the the intense academic discussions about it. And uh, usually where you kind of meet in the middle is, is quite interesting. And you just, you never you never know where you're going to end up with pics. That's the thing. I uh, I try and approach it from quite a practical level. Um, but yeah, it's you just never know what you're getting into, really. <laughs> no, it's... It's a, it's a fascinating topic, and it, like I say, it's something that I knew pretty much nothing about. And I assume a lot of the people that have listened to this will will not have known much. You know, you pick up little bits here and there. So it's it's lovely to speak to someone who just knows, who clearly knows so much. I know you said before you're not an expert on this, but you know, you've clearly done your research. You know, you know so much um, about this, and it's it's so fascinating to hear. Also, just the passion you have for it as well, I think, is is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I just just saw in the chat there someone mentioning the the Aberlemno stones that they like, and then um, just just to throw out, we've got this this museum um, not not too far from here in Angus, where the the main Aberlemno stones are, and this is like getting into seventh eighth century stone carving, and um, just as an interesting thing, you see a lot of pagan uh, stones around here, some of the most famous pagan stone carvings, and then you suddenly see all these churches spring up. And you see all these stone carvings suddenly arrive, which look very, very identical to the ones down in Northumbria. And just to point out what we were talking about earlier about the benefits of Christianization, what that allowed was the church brought all these stone carvers up from Northumbria to start cranking out these amazing, beautiful carvings. Mm -hmm. And what we see in a huge, in a very, very small grouping is some of them are very, very similar. And then some of them are a bit crap. And what we think is we've got either a local stone carver learning with them or a kind of apprentice type thing going on and you see the different skill levels in the stone carving and they're all grouped together and this is where we're looking at like power centers of carving and what's really going on with the culture and the spring of christianity so it's it's not to be seen as a negative thing it's to be seen as a positive thing that brought the culture to life and that's what's still standing today what we still know about the pics is written in christian annals and it's carved on christian stones mm -hmm. no i think i think it's a beautiful place to to wrap up to be honest i think um yeah i've really i really enjoyed this i really enjoyed learning and i think without a doubt everybody that listens to this will will find it absolutely fascinating and um i definitely need to come up and take a look around your workshop and and learn some skills come and do some leather working man yeah we'll do it absolutely i, I, I can't wait to do that um and you said you're going where are, you, where are you going after this? You jump in your uh, car and uh Yeah, Lochte, where the where the Scottish Cranic Centre is. I'll be teaching up there for two weeks doing making leather flasks based on historical ones and high tanning and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. That yeah, sounds pretty cool. It it does, doesn't it? I wish I could uh get up and see see you do that. Um yeah, Hamish, thank you. Thank you very much for for joining us. I don't know if you want to just give a a quick shout out for your Instagram, your website, where people can find your, your work. Cause I guarantee, you know, people listening to this are going to certainly want to come and look at your wares when, uh, when they finish listening to this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for letting me rant. I say I can talk about the pics. The cows come home. So 
And if anybody wants to read up more uh, about the pick specifically, on my website, pictavialeather.co.uk, um, I have all my leather work on there, but I use it as a learning resource too. So if you go into the blog, there's blogs that I write about Pictish timelines, Pictish fashion, clothing, tattooing, and there's links to various TV programs I've done rambling about the same kind of stuff. No, beautiful. Yeah, I think that that's that's a good point because there's going to be a lot of people who send us messages, I think, asking where can they learn more or a good point to start at least with, with learning more about the Picts. We'll, yeah, we'll, make, yeah. we'll make sure to put a link to your website in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks, okay. guys. And on Instagram, you are at Pictavia Leather as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same same for Instagram and Facebook. Perfect. Matthias, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram. Just write my name in and you'll be able to find me. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, yeah, if you want to follow me personally, it's Daniel and Scott Farrand one or if you want to follow the podcast, it's Not In Mythology Podcast on Instagram, Facebook. The website is notinmythologypodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on YouTube as well, where you can watch and see our lovely faces and our guests. And, you know, we, we put the video episodes on there. Um, the Patreon gets 30 days from when they release, but after the first 30 days, everything goes onto YouTube. So you can pick up the, the episodes on there. Um, if you want to support us a little bit further, Patreon's the best way. You get a bonus episode every week. Um, so we either do a Vikings watch along show or we do a story time episode where we, we look through a saga. And at the minute we're doing the Volsunga saga, which is good fun. Mateus reads it. I get to sit here and listen. Um, and then we talk about it and, and go into kind of what it means. Yeah, we, we just go through the story. It, it's good fun. Uh, so just pop over to Patreon forward slash Naughty Mythology Podcast and, and check that out. And I think that's everything. Oh, leave a five star rating and a positive review. Helps find the show. That's the, gonna throw that one in there because it really does kind of help bumpers up the charts and help people uh, people find the show. Um, yeah. So Hamish, thank you very very much. It was this was a lot of fun. This is as much fun as I, I hoped it would be. Well, yes. thanks guys. That's that's been grand. Osman, you you have a safe journey as well. <laughs>